The time now is 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, September 11th, 2023. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. In tonight's news... A political ad that aired after the Packers game last night is linked to a conservative megafunder. A research group is out with the latest findings on Wisconsin's property values and tax data. Adult literacy efforts pass the 1,000 people served threshold this year. And we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the CIA-backed coup in Chile. All these and more on tonight's news. This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Republicans released a draft bill last Thursday that will require a special election for vacancies left after certain state officials resign during their term. The bill would require special elections for the Secretary of State, Treasurer, Attorney General, and State Superintendent of Public Instruction if they resign in office with more than a year left in their term, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Currently, the governor can appoint replacements if an official resigns. Previously, Republicans accused Governor Evers of using the power to trade favors. The former Secretary of State Doug LaFollette resigned only a few months after winning a close election, and Evers appointed his replacement Sarah Godlewski, who had previously dropped out of a primary campaign for Senate. A Wisconsin Senate committee voted today to move forward with the effort to fire Wisconsin Election Commission Administrator Megan Wolf, despite the legal evidence that they do not have the right to consider her reappointment. The Senate Committee on Shared Revenue, Elections and Consumer Protection voted on party lines three to one against recommending Wolf for reappointment, reports the Wisconsin State Journal, with one Democrat abstaining. The vote was taken via paper ballot, which meant that committee members were not there in person to hear the legal memos that argued that the matter was not legally before the Senate. Republican lawmakers are making the unusual legal argument that a majority of the members of the Wisconsin Election Commission voted to submit Administrator Wolf for reappointment, despite the fact that all Democrats in the commission abstained. With only three votes, the measure failed to reach the four-vote majority that nonpartisan legal experts say is required in order for a measure of pat to pass in the six-member body. A number of events happened across the state today to commemorate the anniversary of 9-11, reports WKOW. The events here in Dane County included a blood drive over at Garver Feed Mill and remembrance ceremonies at fire stations in Madison and Sun Prairie. A Wisconsin man was arrested on Thursday on charges of assault and civil disorder for his participation in the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Videos show the man grabbing the face shield of a Capitol Police officer as well as pushing his way into the Capitol building and then escaping through a window, reports WMTV. More than 1,000 people have been arrested across the nation for their involvement in the January 6th attack. A male inmate was found dead Friday morning in the Rock County Jail, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The man was found unresponsive around 8 a.m., and officials are investigating the death. It is at least the third death at the jail this year. This year, the city of Madison has seen a significant reduction in the number of shots fired incidents since the number peaked in 2020, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. There have been a little more than 100 shots fired incidents as of September of this year, down from the 250 such incidents in 2020. 
Despite that fact, homicides in the city continue to hover around 10 per year, with nine reported this year so far. The police chief said that this year has been an unusually high number of domestic violence-related homicides. A community meeting is scheduled for Tuesday this week to discuss the plan for a 68-unit housing project at the former site of the Westgate Mall. The proposed development would be income would be for income-restricted people making 30 to 80% of the area's median income, reports the Capital Times. It would be the fourth building constructed by developer J.T. Klein on the former site of the Westgate Mall, with a fifth building also in the works. Tuesday's meeting will include a presentation from the developer, and residents interested in the project are invited to attend. Madison was awash this weekend with Ironman Wisconsin participants, who rode 112 miles by bike, ran a marathon, and swam a 2.4-mile course. And while downtown Madison was festive with supportive fans, bespoke t-shirts, and signs galore, the competition also took a somber turn yesterday after a 51-year-old Madison man died in cross planes during the biking portion. Previously, two participants died in the 2019 race, both during the swimming portion of the race on Lake Monona. And now, on to today's top stories. If you were watching last night's Packer game on Fox, you might have seen an ad outside of the traditional fare of beer or consumer gadgets. This ad parrots conservative talking points decrying critical race theory, which sparked producer Faye Park's interest in tracing it to its source. This one-minute ad features a father and his daughter, interspersed with pictures of children playing and American flags. Daddy teaches you you can be anything in this world that you want to be, right? Don't Daddy teach you that? Yeah, and it doesn't matter if you're black or white or any color. See? This is how, this is how children think right here. Critical race theory wants to end that. It also uses out-of-context comments from a teacher at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. School, a Milwaukee middle school centering African-American immersion. The teacher did not return a request for comment today. The ad takes aim at a niche academic and legal framework taught in higher education known as critical race theory, parroting a frequent conservative talking point that children are being taught CRT. The ad is the work of Be Good to Kids, a limited liability company registered in Ohio six months ago. It's one of 71 LLCs or nonprofits created this year by Langdon Law a firm run by David Langdon. Other organizations formed by Langdon this year include Working Ohioans Against Recreational Marijuana, Coalition to Restore American Values, Conservative Alliance of Republicans, Cambridge Digital Bible Study, and both an LLC and a PAC with the name Parents Against Stupid Stuff. A 2015 report from Politico investigated Langdon. That article, which described him as the suburban Ohio lawyer behind the right's dark money machine, found that Langdon poured at least $22 million into federal and state elections. Among those candidates benefiting from groups created by Langdon Law include Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who's running for the Senate next year. He's also the subject of an FEC complaint that alleges LaRose delayed registering as an official candidate and coordinated with an outside political group. According to the Center for Media and Democracy, a watchdog investigating political corruption, Langdon Law donated more than $400,000 to Scott Walker during his recall campaign. This was done through the Coalition to Restore American Values, whose funding comes from a Koch Brothers think tank. They're one of the organizations listed under the John Doe investigation, which accused Scott Walker of campaign finance violations. The official website for the American Principles Project, another of Langdon's conservative think tanks, takes aim at what it calls hostile progressive attacks on parents and children. 
In 2021, Republicans in the Wisconsin State Legislature introduced legislation designed to ban the teaching of critical race theory in K-12 and UW system schools. Meanwhile, experts dispute the central claim of the ad, that children are learning critical race theory. Kevin Lawrence Henry, a professor in the UW-Madison Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis, told WORT in 2021 that CRT is rarely taught below the college level. Most critical race theory courses developed in law schools. These were uh, approaches to help lawyers understand how race was operating in the law. So critical race theory started in law schools and professional schools, uh, and it increasingly moved to graduate programs in sociology and education and public health um, to help individuals that are both practitioners as well as those that would like to be researchers um, understand how racial disparities were operating in their particular endeavors or their particular field. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Last week, the Wisconsin Policy Forum released their latest findings using their property values and tax data tool. The tool is publicly accessible on their website and has tracked a dramatic increase in the state's property value over the last few years. But is that increase reflected in tax levies as well? WORT news producer Faye Parks spoke with Mark Mark Summerhauser, the forum's communications director, this afternoon to learn more. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Faye. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So to start, what exactly is this data tool? Yeah, so the Property Taxes uh, and Values Data Tool is an interactive tool that uh, is hosted on our website, wispolicyforum.org. And it's just something that's available to anybody who is interested to use it and can you know, have access to be able to log on to our website. And it's just an interactive tool that contains basically data on property values and property tax levies, as well as property tax rates for all of the 72 counties and more than 1,800 cities, villages, and towns in the state of Wisconsin. And so what, you know, any of your listeners can do, anybody that's interested to log onto our website and use the tool, what they can do with it then is compare all of these things, property values, property taxes, across all of those counties, all of those cities, villages, and towns. You know, the forum does a number of interactive tools about this on things such as schools, municipal finances, and so forth. This is just one of a number of examples of interactive tools that we host on our website that we want to just put out there for the public to be able to have access to. Okay, and out of curiosity, when was this data tool implemented? And then where is it pulling the data from? Yeah, so the, the data tool actually has been around for quite a while, I think for more than a decade, and it actually even predates our organization because one of the two predecessors of the Wisconsin Policy Forum, an organization called the Public Policy Forum, which was Milwaukee area based and really just focused on Southeast Wisconsin issues, sort of pioneered this more than a decade ago. When the Wisconsin Policy Forum was created in 2018 from the merger, that group and another group, we decided to essentially take this tool from being just a Milwaukee area thing to statewide, so that anybody statewide could use it to look at property values and taxes in their part of Wisconsin. And so what we've done since is sort of just update this data annually. Then this can be a little confusing, and I 
I totally understand how it's a little tricky. We're using essentially the most up-to-date data for each metric. And so what that means is that for some data, it's going back to 2022. For other data, it's for 2023. And that's simply because we wanted to use the most up-to-date numbers that we could for each metric, which is what ends up in this situation where some of it is from 22, some of it's from 23, but whatever you're looking at, it was the most recent numbers that we could get for that particular category. Why is it important to track property values and taxes? Well, you know, I think that there's a lot of reasons. Uh, obviously, folks who work in the areas of such things as real estate and construction and so forth are always kind of interested in these trends in property values uh, because it, it, it will tell you a lot about kind of what's happening in those industries. I think from our standpoint, and so we have some people in those spaces who are actually members of the forum and I think probably use the tool for that purpose. For us, probably the biggest thing is that Wisconsin is a state that is very reliant on property taxes to a greater extent than most states. And there is a really close connection between property values, how they intersect with property taxes, and how all these things affect the revenues that are going to our cities, our counties, and our school districts, which are kind of the three main cities, villages, and towns being one category, counties being another, school districts being the other. Those three categories are very reliant on property taxes. And those, they in turn are, you know, hinge a lot on property values. So we want to help people kind of understand a little bit more about that connection and be able to see how it might affect their community. And what are your most recent findings? Yeah, so the findings that we have kind of talked about with this tool, obviously, there's going to be different trends in every community. And so and we encourage people to, you know, use the tool to look up whatever is happening with property values and property taxes within their community. I, I can talk just a little bit about the statewide trends, uh, which were pretty striking, I think, in the area of property values. We saw at a statewide level, total equalized property values statewide in 2023, a 13.1% increase in total equalized property values. What does that mean? Or what does that mean, I guess, in context? Well, it's a really, really large increase. Going back to 1985, which was the earliest year for which we had these data, it was the second largest annual increase on a percentage basis that we've seen. The only year that was bigger was the previous year, 2022. So if you combine now these last two years, we've seen really historically enormous increases in property values uh, across the board at a statewide level. And again, you can drill into different communities and see slightly different numbers, but I think that is one number that is generally pretty applicable statewide. If you look in almost every community, we were seeing double-digit percentage increases in property values. So that is something that's pretty close to being across the board there. Some of our other key findings here are property tax levies, entirety of the property tax that's levied by a, a city or a county or a school district that then is distributed across all the property owners within that jurisdiction. Gross property tax levies at a statewide level in late 2022, the bills that were actually sent out to people in December of 2022, those went up by 2.4% statewide. That was a slight uptick from the previous year, which was about a 1.6% increase. I do think it's important to add another number for context there, which was inflation. And as we all remember, 2022, in particular, inflation was quite significant by historic standards. 8% was the rate of inflation in 2022. So 2.4% increase in levies versus 8% inflation. You can see that you know the levy increase was quite a bit below what the rate of inflation was. So I think that is an important number to bear in mind. 
And then I would say the last number that was kind of among our sort of big top line findings that I would emphasize is the statewide gross property tax rate. And this is a pretty complicated system, so it's not an easy thing to just dive into if you're not super familiar with it. But essentially, because you know the yearly growth that we saw in property values really quite significantly exceeded the growth in our property tax levies, so a 13.1% increase versus a 2.4% increase, that meant that our statewide property tax rate went down quite sharply. Uh, and in fact, we saw 10% decrease by that measure. That was the largest annual decrease on a percentage basis that we saw since 1996. Quite a large increase in the rate, in the property tax rate at a statewide level. Of course, this doesn't mean that every single person's property tax rate necessarily declined everywhere or by the same amount, because there are so many factors that influence an individual's property tax bill and their property tax rate. But looking at statewide level, a 10% decrease in one year is quite a dramatic decrease in the overall property tax rate. Essentially, what you're saying is that property value has gone on a steady increase and, in fact, has really spiked because of inflation, that sort of thing. And then the levies potentially are, are you know, keeping a cap on, on how that is reflected then yes. in taxes. And they're still going up, but they're just going up by really small amounts, right? So like, uh, you know, 2.4% in 2022 was a, was a very modest increase, right? I mean, you know, especially compared to inflation, 8% that year. If you kind of combine all these cities and counties and villages and towns and school districts and you look at those property tax levies combined, that's kind of the number that we're looking at there. Among all those jurisdictions, all those property tax levies combined went up about 2.4% statewide. And so that was, again, a really modest increase. You know, you compare that to what was happening with property values, obviously a much, much sharper increase at more than 13%. And again, you have those property tax levies now only going up very slightly, but being spread across a much, you know, a significant increase in the overall value of property that's subject to the property tax. We probably think of tax rate most often in connection with the sales tax. Because that's something we'll, we might look at a receipt or something when we buy something at the store and we see most people in Wisconsin actually pay a five and a half cent sales tax because we have a five cent state sales tax and most counties have a, another half cent tacked on top of that. We probably most often think of the tax rate in, in those terms. We might think of it in terms of the income tax rate that we pay uh, when we pay our income taxes. This is just applying that same concept to the property tax. What does all of this mean for Wisconsin residents, either in terms of property ownership or funding for schools? Yeah. How exactly is this reflected in everyone's daily lives? So I think what it means is that most Wisconsinites are going to see pretty modest property tax increases, or did see, I should say, in these, in these bills that they received in late 2022. And, you know, that's something that I think, obviously, you know, property tax increases can be very politically contentious. They can be really upsetting to people when they, if they get a bill that shows a really large increase in their property tax bill. So there could be individual communities, which for various reasons did see larger property tax increases. But overall, at a statewide level, it was really quite a modest increase in property taxes this last year compared to the rate of inflation, compared to a lot of other measures, certainly compared to the rate at which real estate was increasing in value during this period. 
We know that the last couple of years have been a difficult time for a lot of people in terms of just their household budgets because of the overall rate of inflation. So perhaps uh, you know, a good thing for people that have been struggling to pay for the cost of goods in other areas that have really sharply increased over the last couple of years. The flip side, though, if we do look at kind of what the implication is for our local governments, this is, again, you know, one of their main sources of revenue. So it, it is certainly concerning, I think, to a lot of local governments, cities, counties, and school districts when their revenue sources are not keeping up with inflation. The good news is they did get an increase in state aid in the most recent budget that Governor Evers signed here back in July. So they will be getting more money from the state. In the case of the cities and villages and counties, it's going to be a pretty significant increase for a lot of them. So they are getting more revenue from that side of their revenue portfolio. But from the property tax side of things, which for all of these entities, those are their two main sources of revenue, state aid and their local property tax levy. And so especially for the municipalities and the counties, they are at least seeing a significant increase in in state aid, somewhat smaller uh, increase, but still a significant one for schools. But then the other piece of their revenue picture, their property tax levy, a really modest and in most cases sub-inflationary increase in their property tax levy, the revenues they're getting from that. Uh, and so that is, you know, I think going to put some continuing budgetary pressure on, on those local governments. It's going to create a situation where they have to be really careful about their spending. Is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners? Some of the numbers that we have that are kind of specific to Dane County, we did see an increase in Dane County last year in total equalized property values of 11.6%. So interestingly, that was slightly below the state average, if you remember the 13.1% increase statewide. So some people might actually be a bit surprised to hear that. You know, I live in, in Dane County, and we're all conscious of how, <laughs> how expensive uh, real estate is in this area compared to most other parts of the Midwest. But we did see other parts of Wisconsin actually seeing bigger increases this last year in property values uh, compared to Dane County. So that may be a bit of a surprise. That was Mark Sommerhauser of the Wisconsin Policy Forum. The nonpartisan research organization released updated information on Wisconsin's property values and taxes last week. They found that all seven southwest counties saw a double-digit increase in property values in 2023. Your time right now is 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us tonight. In 2023, the Literacy Network has served over a 1,000 students, providing everything from English as a Second Language classes to GED instruction to citizenship classes. Last Friday, subhost Jeff Burkhardt got the chance to chat with Bex Fabrizio, director of the ESL Group Instruction at the Network. Today is International Literacy Day. It's designed to highlight the importance of literacy as a matter of dignity and human rights and to advance toward a more literate and sustainable society. Uh, UNESCO estimates that at least 263 million young people and adults lacked basic literacy skills in 2020. Well, International Literacy Day focuses on a global sustainability goal of education and lifelong learning and to emphasize the role of literacy in building more inclusive, peaceful, just, and sustainable societies. Literacy Network is a local organization 
and they estimate that 55,000 adults in our community struggle with literacy skills. Today, we'll start the show by talking with Director of ESL Group Instruction, Bex Fabrizio. Welcome to the show, Bex. Thanks so much for having me. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. So let's talk about what Literacy Network does to help adults attain literacy skills. Well, one reason I love working at Literacy Network is that we keep the students at the center of all that we do, and we are here to serve their English language goals and also general literacy goals. We do that through group classes and also offering one-on-one tutoring. All students start at Literacy Network by being asked about their goals and needs and how they will learn best. And we use that information to tailor our programs to fit their needs. We also offer support beyond the English classroom. We help students connect to other resources in the community to serve needs such as housing, food, or childcare. And we also offer academic advising, personal enrollment, and just encouragement from our entire staff. Could you talk a little bit more about some of the goals of the students that you're working with? We serve students from over 70 countries with a wide variety of educational experiences and backgrounds. So their goals are as diverse as they are, but to name some of the most common goals, For the English as a Second Language learners that we serve, their focus is on work, whether that's getting a raise, promotion, a new job. They also want to be able to communicate in their everyday lives, so doctors, visits, and making appointments, helping their children at school with homework, and some of them also have goals related to moving to university, academic success, or getting a certificate. We also support students who are native speakers of English, and some of their goals may be to pursue a GED or HSED, improve reading comprehension, or understanding math better. Talk about some of the challenges that you're helping to address as people are pursuing those goals. Sure. So to bring it local to Wisconsin, one in seven adults struggle with literacy and one in five struggle with math in ways that impact their everyday lives. And some barriers that contribute to those numbers are things like transportation limitations, um, child care work schedules, sometimes having multiple jobs, mm-hmm. and To keep students at the heart of all that we do, we put a lot of effort into addressing those barriers. So in terms of transportation, we have many locations for our classes, not only our office on Park Street, of course, but also partnerships throughout Dane County, Sun Prairie, Middleton, Wanakee. And in terms of childcare, some of our classes do offer free concurrent childcare while our students are taking classes. So we try our best to mitigate all the barriers they face in in learning and overcoming those statistics. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you're just tuning in, we're talking with the director of ESL Group Instruction, Bex Fabrizio from Literacy Network. So, Bex, uh, the organization I know has been working on creating a student leadership committee. Um, could you talk more about that and why it's important? 
Yes, we're really excited to start the Student Leadership Council because this is just another way to level up how student-centered our mission is. And the council plans to capture valuable student feedback at the level of decision-making so that everyone has a voice in our organization and big decisions and planning. We want to make sure that our services stay student-centered and current so that as the needs and goals of our students and their families evolve, we are responding to that in a timely manner. And at the same time, we want to offer a leadership opportunity for students that they can leverage to access other leadership positions in their career or community lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You talked a little bit about the numbers of students that we've had this year Mm -hmm. um, before the interview here. Um, It sounds like there's a pretty significant number of folks. Yes. Well, last year we were excited to see a bounce back from the pandemic. We served a little bit over 1,000 students, which is the number we were serving approximately before COVID-19. And this year we are so thrilled that in the first half of the year we have already served over 1,000 students. Wow. Yes, and that's a record enrollment for the first half of the year, and I think we're going to blow last year's numbers mm-hmm. out of the water. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That's great. Uh, can you tell me about a little bit about the programs at Literacy Network and how they're uh, helping students to accomplish their goals? Yeah, so as I mentioned, um, we have two different types of programs. We serve English language learners through group classes at levels basic to advanced. We also have citizenship classes for those that want to prepare to um, be a U.S. citizen. And then we have community English classes, which make use of partnerships throughout Dane County to um, spread our impact beyond Park Street. Uh, We also have workplace classes where students get paid um, on company time to take English that will help in their job setting. Mm And then in terms of native English speakers, we also offer um, tutoring either to pursue a GED or um, everyday reading and writing. So in 2015, I finished my Peace Corps service and then master's degree, and I started at Literacy Network because I knew my heart was in adult English as a second language. And um, I started as an intern where I prepared individual lessons for eight students and helped coach volunteers on teaching those lessons. I did that for a few years, and then I also started teaching group classes as um, a part-time LTE. And then um, after about three years Mm. of just waiting for an opportunity to become (laughs) full-time staff, um, that opportunity came up and I applied to the community English program manager position. And I was just delighted to become um, a bigger part of the Literacy Mm -hmm. Network 
staff and and family really yeah so and from there i have taken on more responsibilities to get me to where i am today yeah that's wonderful um well i mean i i'm just really um honored that you had the opportunity to come on uh this morning i uh, would like to thank you for for joining us here bex Thank you so much. Once Literacy Network family, always Literacy Network family. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is 100% true. Well, Bex Fabrizio is the director of ESL Group Instruction at Literacy Network. Today is the 15th anniversary of the CIA-backed coup in Chile. The coup ended hopes for a nation that prioritizes the working people. It also ushered in a period of dictatorship, one from which Chile itself and our own nation are still recovering. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Today is the 50th anniversary of the CIA-backed military coup in Chile. In 1973, the elected socialist government of Salvador Allende was replaced by the brutal dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet. During his 17-year military rule, more than 40,000 people were physically and psychologically tortured. Hundreds of thousands of Chileans were jailed, murdered, prosecuted, or exiled. More than 1,000 men and women are still among the disappeared, with no funerals and no graves, wrote Ariel Dorfman, former cultural advisor in President Yende's government in a New York Times guest essay yesterday. To understand 1973, we need to go back to 1958, says Peter Kornbluh, the preeminent researcher on Chile's coup and U.S. involvement. He's worked for the National Security Archives since 1986 to get all of the U.S. documents declassified. He's compiled and analyzed many of the once-classified documents. He wrote the book, The Pinochet Files, a declassified dossier on atrocity and accountability. He was interviewed recently by Mark Cooper in Truth Dig. In 1958, Allende came extremely close to the presidency. If not for the 5% of the vote by a popular progressive priest, Allende would have likely been the first freely elected Marxist in the world at the height of the Cold War in the late 50s. And world history would have been different because he would have created a model for social and political change in Latin America one year before Fidel Castro took power, said Cornblue. Instead, Fidel set the example, scaring Kennedy, who decided to make Chile an example for Latin American reformist revolution. Kennedy met secretly with the Christian Democratic leader, Free, in 1962 and funded his party. In the 1964 presidential election, the CIA launched a major propaganda drive and financed 50% of Free's campaign. The CIA bought radio stations, newspapers, and TV stations to promote the Christian Democrats, and it worked. Over the next six years, the U.S. spent more than $1 billion in aid and investments to support the Christian Democrats to keep Allende out of power, but failed. Most Chileans supported the popular unity reforms, land redistribution, public ownership of their leading export, copper, then owned by two U.S. corporations, Kennecott and Anaconda. All the utilities were owned by IT&T, an infamous monopolistic corporation. They told National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger and President Richard Nixon they were going to start funding the ultra-conservative candidate, and we think you should work with us. Kissinger turned them away. In the summer of 1970, the CIA launched a secret effort to undermine Allende. They feared that public exposure would benefit Allende. They worked to get Congress not to ratify Allende's election if he won by a plurality 
as required by the Chilean constitution. The military realized their deciding role, and General René Schneider, the top Chilean military leader, said, the Chilean military will not be intervening in the results of this election. The CIA conducted a discrediting operation in the newspapers and TV stations they controlled, but Allende won the first plurality, with 35% of the vote on September 4th. The Christian Democratic candidate had a third of the vote, but seeing the left's popularity had co-opted their program. The right wing got the rest, but two-thirds of the voters supported Allende's reforms. Within hours of Allende's election, Augustin Edwards, one of Chile's richest men, Rupert Murdoch of Chile, met with the U.S. ambassador. Edwards was also Chile's Pepsi representative. He was close to the American head who arranged a series of Washington meetings for him. On September 14th, he met with CIA Director Richard Helms with massive intelligence and an analysis on the potential coup plotters. The next morning, he had breakfast with Kissinger. Edwards met with Nixon as well. The next day, Nixon calls Helms and says, you have to block Allende from being inaugurated. Make the economy scream don't tell the embassy. Ten million dollars more if necessary. Use the best men you have. CIA operatives later kill General Schneider in a botched kidnap attempt to disappear him and blame Allende. Allende's election was ratified by a congressional majority after he made constitutional guarantees to the Christian Democrats on October 24th. On November 5th, 1970, Kissinger convinced Nixon that the example of a successful Marxist government in Chile would surely have an impact and even precedent value for other parts of the world, especially Italy. The U.S. could lose investments of $1 billion in Chile. The U.S. government backs the coup, but the Chilean military is in charge and takes over three years later, September 11, 1973. After a long struggle, Pinochet was trounced in a 1988 plebiscite. In 1990, Christian Democrats came to power. On September 4, 1990, on the 20th anniversary of his election victory, Allende finally received the triumphant funeral his enemies had denied him. Hundreds of thousands were in the streets shouting Allende's name. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's been five years since the historic flood in Madison and elsewhere in south-central Wisconsin, and the recently announced capital budget proposal from Mayor Maddie from Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway includes $22 million to update Madison's stormwater system to prevent flooding in the first place. As Yale's Climate Connections share, flood prevention projects like these can enhance people's well-being in under-recognized ways, improving health and offering spaces for public recreation. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Water levels in the Great Lakes can vary dramatically. Some years they're low, others they're high, and over decades they can fluctuate by up to six feet. The lakes go down just long enough for people to forget that they're going to come back up. Richard Norton is an urban planner at the University of Michigan. He's part of the Resilient Great Lakes Coast Program, which is helping coastal communities in Michigan plan for shifting lake levels. He says when water levels in the Great Lakes are low for a long time, people might build too close to the shore. Then, when water levels rise again, their property could face flooding and erosion. And as climate change brings more intense storms, with heavy rain and strong waves, the problem could get worse. Many landowners along the lakeshore have built seawalls to help protect their properties. But Norton says that these seawalls only buy limited time. 
the day someone puts in a seawall is the day the lake starts to try and take it back out. He says that in some locations, the best way to prevent property damage may be to limit building too close to the shore. So Norton helps communities along Lake Michigan understand the risks and plan how to best manage their changing shorelines. As seas rise and weather becomes more extreme, many communities are investing in flood prevention projects. Some are creating rain gardens or other green spaces that absorb and hold water. Others are restoring coastal dunes that can help protect inland areas. These projects can be expensive, so Tess Deffinger of the University of Alabama says that as cities weigh the pros and cons, it's important to realize that flood prevention can do more than just protect property. For example, reducing flooding also helps protect people's health and well-being. There's a reduced chance of disease outbreak after a storm or a flood event. Just even that extra sense of safety, so mentally, psychologically, having that there can also help. Deffinger encourages communities to design projects that help residents in other ways, too. Could you add in an additional recreation area, like as a buffer between the river and the city, like a city walk, things like that, that could actually add some additional space for the city for people to use? She says talking about and designing for these co-benefits can help engage residents and attract investors. And their support can help ensure that critical flood prevention projects get done. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Tonight, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies. One is a new eight-episode series based on a popular manga series set in a fantasy land of pirates and swashbuckling adventure. The other is a long-awaited sequel to an 80s classic that's just as exciting as the original. For as long as I can remember, it's been my dream to become... That was clip from the trailer for the fun new live-action adventure series One Piece. One Piece is based on the beloved manga series by Itiro Oda. This is a story of pirates, treasure hunting, fights, and chase scenes, and pursuing your dreams, no matter how ridiculous that may seem. This is a richly staged series. One report claims Netflix spent $18 million per episode with fun special effects, and most important, a great cast, each with their own interesting backstory. Our story opens in the world government's fortress city with the multitudes awaiting the execution of legendary pirate Gold Rogers. Rogers is defiant to his last breath, bragging. He has done everything he wanted to do in his life. He has no regrets. He calls on the people to be free to take to the seas and find his treasure, the One Piece. Many in the crowd do just that, starting the age of the pirates. Enter Monkey D. Luffy, a great Inoki Godoy, who we first meet trying to bail out his small boat. He can't swim, an inauspicious start for a great adventure. Luffy, a slender teen brimming with optimism and energy, aspires not only to find the One Piece, 17 years has passed since the death of Gold Rogers, but to become king of the pirates. But Luffy is more than he seems, as he stows aboard a pirate ship and enlists the aid of a naive teen who's forced labor for the pirate captain. Luffy shares his story with his new friend, He's wanted to be a pirate all his life. Luffy was an orphan who made friends with a local pirate, Captain, a fun Peter Gaddio as Shanks. 
Shanks, too, is more than he seems. He has stolen a valuable treasure hidden in a small chest, which the young Luffy breaks open. He discovers a fruit inside, and being always hungry, eats it. It tastes awful. It is the devil's fruit, which gives unique powers to those who consume it. Luffy is suddenly able to stretch himself to great lengths. This comes in handy in fighting. He begs Shanks to let him join his crew, but Shanks refuses. All this is backstory to our main adventure where Luffy gains a crew, a clever thief, Nami Emily Rude, a great swordsman, Renoa Zoro, Makenyu Usopp, Jacob Romero Gibson, a spinner of tall tales, and Sanji, Taz Skyler, a great cook and martial arts fighter. A truly wondrous series with pirates, strange beings, like an evil clown and fishman, well worth your time. The best manga adaptation Netflix has done yet. Up next, a sequel to an outstandingly entertaining film from the 80s. Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You were here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. And that was a clip from the trailer for Top Gun Maverick, directed by Joe Kaczynski. If you liked the original 1986 Top Gun, you'll probably like this one as well. Tom Cruise again stars as Pete Mitchell, Maverick, still captain after all these years. He's avoided promotion, much to the irritation of his superiors, explained in a great opening scene with Rear Admiral Chester Kane Ed Harris. Harris played John Glenn in The Right Stuff in 1983. Without the right stuff, there would have been no Top Gun. Kane has come to give Mitchell his final assignment. School, the next generation of Top Gun fighters, for a dangerous mission. Given little choice, Maverick agrees. As he's leaving, Kane says that Maverick's days are over. The new planes will be pilotless. To which a smirking Maverick replies, Maybe, but not today. The opening scene sets up the movie and maybe sums up why we like this character so much. In the prior scene, he goes for broke, pushing the test plane past its limit to keep the program going. Maverick has seen action in the intervening 36 years in Bosnia and Iraq. The best of the best pilots still have a few things to learn from the old man. Once at the base, he tries to renew his relationship with Penny Benjamin, a fun Jennifer Connelly, who runs the bar near the base. Their initial meeting ends in Maverick being cheerfully thrown out of the bar by those flyers. Sadly for Maverick, those flyers include the son of his late friend, Goose. Rooster, a convincing Miles Teller, blames Maverick for his dad's death and holding back his career. The Air Force fully supported this project. The cast actually flew in the jets, and the cinematographer, Claudio Miranda recorded their reactions in IMAX quality cameras. Despite the great action sequences, some of the most powerful scenes are personal ones on the ground, like the meeting with the Iceman, Val Kilmer, and Maverick. Interestingly, the enemy is never identified. The idea that the enemy has superior fighter planes is absurd. The Navy is hoping the movie will be a great recruitment ad. Let's hope real-world activity, like the war between Russia and Ukraine, trumps the movie. All in all, a fun action-adventure film, even on DVD from your friendly local video store. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Reporter Charlie Bielowski was on assignment. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Jeff Burkhart, Dr. Anthony Leitzowitz, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. 
Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.